This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to value listeners, we have one out of every three U.S. healthcare dollars emanating from Washington. The federal government is the single largest payer of health services in the United States and accounts for nearly half of all national healthcare spending. And as our country ages, these forces are accelerating, and Medicare spending alone is projected to increase by 7.5% annually through 2031. And healthcare companies have to start thinking about the government. As a primary customer of healthcare, whether or not you depend on government revenue or you're downstream from it, we have to begin thinking differently about our advocacy efforts. And, you know, in this week's podcast, I brought on Andrew Schwab. He's a value based care leader, he's an intentional strategist, he's a master of Washington's internal game. He's with a firm that he founded called Platform Government Strategies, which helps organizations throughout the provider continuum be able to create and leverage internal advocacy expertise. He's someone that's bringing a bold, brash, no-holds-barred approach to government affairs. He's out there coaching and mentoring forward-thinking organizations that are ready to invest in their policy team so they can thrive in this new era of value-based care. You know, Andrew has done work in D.C. He's been in state capital. He's been with trade and member associations. He's been with a publicly traded company. He's someone that really understands how to advocate on behalf of both nonprofits and private sector organizations. Before he started his firm, he was recently with Oak Street Health. At Oak Street Health, Andrew established the government's first government affairs function. He had a relentless drive there at Oak Street to have them be at the center of the national value-based care confirmation. And being a part of the Washington Health Policy Firmament was one of the reasons why CVS Health purchased the company for $10.6 billion. And after establishing the government affairs function at Oak Street, now he's guiding companies and developing their own strategies. So I'm just excited to bring this conversation to you all. I mean, he's going to be talking about how to create the more perfect union. I mean, how do we unlock the potential of value-based payment through in-house advocacy? Um, this will definitely be a an episode you'll learn a lot about in terms of you know how to advocate for your respective interests in DC as we're all trying to make sure that value-based care as a movement can continue to allow organizations that are taking risks to sustain and be successful in the long term. So let's now hear from Andrew Schwab as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Andrew, welcome to the Race to Value. It is so awesome to have you on the show this week. Thanks so much, Dr. Weaver, for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, it's my pleasure. Andrew, over the years, you've become known for your advocacy work in value-based care, having advocated in-house on behalf of both nonprofit and private sector organizations. Most recently, before starting your new lobbying firm, Platform Government Strategies, you were the vice president and head of government affairs for Oak Street Health establishing their government affairs function at the ground level, which culminated in nearly $11 billion acquisition by CVS Health. And you and I share a passion for healthcare transformation, and I consider myself an advocate or even an evangelist for the value-based care movement, but I don't have the connections to DC like you do. And while I'm focused on industry peer learning to advance transformation, you're out there lobbying on behalf of ACOs and risk-bearing entities to ensure that their voice 
is heard at the federal level. And we'll talk more about your firm later in the interview, but I first wanted to ask you about the value movement itself. Given looming Medicare insolvency and aging population, an alarming amount of our GDP dedicated to healthcare, it seems that value-based care transformation is a foregone conclusion. However, the movement has been glacial over the last decade. I mean, it seems like we should have this bipartisan consensus on the aims of health value. I mean, lower per capita costs, improved quality, better patient experience, reduced inequities, provider satisfaction. But the system is just too entrenched, it seems, to evolve in response to the economic and moral imperatives. And, you know, at some point, we have to overcome our addiction to fee-for-service to fully realize the vision of accountable care on a national scale. And, you know, CMS has set that goal as 2030 to have every Medicare beneficiary in an accountable care relationship with the provider. So, Andrew, I wanted to ask you as we start our conversation, you know, how do you see the current political landscape influencing the momentum of this movement? And what strategies do you believe are crucial for bridging the gap between the bipartisan consensus on the aims and the actual implementation of transformative policies? I mean, what will be needed to get us to this point of reaching this 2030 value-based care goal? Yeah, Eric, I think that there's a lot of throwing around of the word inertia and status quo and glacial. Those adjectives, I think, are important thinking about the kind of current moment we're in in value-based care, right? And so really started to come to fruition after the passage of the Affordable Care Act, but was was kind of slow in coming for the, its first decade. And now the, the, the government, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and, and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation are really putting their thumb on the scale and saying, this is what we want in Medicare by 2030, as many Medicare beneficiaries as possible in an accountable relationship. The definition of accountable relationship is, is kind of fluid. But I think that the reason that those three adjectives are often thrown around have several reasons for happening. The first is, is that the inertia is intense, right? The, the money that is moving around the American healthcare system is plentiful. And a lot of people are protecting those dollar streams. Uh, and in a system that is not a true functioning market with significant government involvement, now you know almost 42% of all the healthcare bills in America are paid for by a government entity. Advocacy and politics take root here, uh, as they should, right? It, you know, I like to say that advocacy and, and lobbying are quintessentially American things. They're literally in the First Amendment to to be able to petition your government for redress of grievances. Um, that doesn't give any credence to institutions and entities that might get outsized say in those conversations that are protected by the First Amendment. But that is a very American thing, and so the inertia the money, the reliance and comfort on fee-for-service. And then I think that there are political implications. Elected officials and appointed regulators in Washington, D.C. and in state capitals react to a different set of incentives than perhaps the business community does. And so while there are very clearly champions on Capitol Hill and in the regulatory agencies uh, for value-based care, there is uh, also some opposition on both sides of the aisle and skepticism. When you combine that with a total move towards private sector being kind of partners with the federal and state governments to be able to deliver these services, you throw that all into a pot of a very rich soup rich meaning thick and dynamic soup and multi multiple pieces of the puzzle type of soup for things to move much more slowly than we would like. Well, Andrew, it seems like if we're going to truly transform our American healthcare system through impactful health policy, you know, we have to leverage the Medicare Advantage program. I mean, it's simply too big to ignore and both in terms of enrollment and economic and clinical outcomes. I mean, currently we have over Half of eligible Medicare beneficiaries enrolled in a private MA plan, and this explosive growth trajectory 
is moving in the direction of 70 to 80 percent enrollment over the next decade. And that coupled with the silver tsunami of the aging baby boomer population, it you know, certainly makes MA an attractive lever of health reform based on the sheer magnitude of market penetration. Moreover, we have this demonstrable amount of evidence now that is showing that MA plans deliver better economic and clinical outcomes. I mean, they seem to really be an area for consumer-centric innovation where certain health plans can offer members greater flexibility, inventive care models, and increased emphasis on economic value and unique benefit options, often while still being more affordable than traditional fee-for-service coverage. And MA is also, from what I understand, superior in the quality of care, you know, based on the ability of groups to execute on a value agenda with two-sided risk arrangements that allow for enhanced care coordination and SDOH interventions. And it's extremely popular with high levels of satisfaction reported by the enrolled beneficiaries. But unfortunately, there's a, a lot of political contention with the program. I mean, concerns range from you know, having private equity-backed physician aggregators pro providing per-life investment valuations that are absorbent. You have overpayment to MA plans based on risk adjustment gaming, a mini claim. Uh, there's what some call the perverse business model that contributes to surging growth and extraordinary profits of health plans. And so I wanted to ask you as, as an advocate for value-based care, I mean, what are your views on the MA program? I mean, is this the most favorable model to fully leverage the power of capitation to improve care outcomes in underserved communities? Or will we need to wait on the government to eventually mandate advanced APMs in the traditional Medicare program to reach that elusive tipping point for value? Mark, you did a, you did a really fabulous job of, of outlining and describing all of the, again, to use that phrase, the soup that is kind of like being cooked inside a giant Medicare Advantage health policy pot, right? And so I, I think that there's a, a, some things that we need to, to unpack and tease out and know what are, are the ingredients in that soup. So number one, you hit the nail over the, on the head. We crossed 50% of the Medicare population being inside of Medicare Advantage. And that has created a, a sort of blowback on some level from what I describe as folks who believe in the sanctity of fee-for-service. Now, the sanctity of fee-for-service developments are linked both to the comfort that physicians, especially specialists and hospitals, have with the revenue stream of fee-for-service Medicare, but it is also linked to the idea that it is a way outside of privatization. And so you have these kind of competing public policy and political forces fighting over Medicare Advantage. But the reality of the situation is A, Medicare Advantage is seen to be incredibly popular. B, study after study does show superior outcomes when it comes to certain metrics that the entire health policy desires. And then C, what I like to say and what to have focus on is it is really hard to have a CMS committed to as many Medicare beneficiaries as possible in an accountable relationship by 2030, while at the same time disparaging Medicare Advantage. Why? Because Medicare Advantage is the primary place where value-based care relationships in Medicare happen. You know, there is MSSP, there are several CMMI demonstration programs and models, but Medicare Advantage is where this innovation and accountability happens. And so you also very correctly touch on the idea of risk gaming and risk adjustment manipulation, and that was part of what CMS was trying to ameliorate in the new V28 risk adjustment mechanisms that are going to be implemented a third, a third, a third over the next three years to kind of bring out some of that risk adjustment gaming, to use your word, but also to kind of combat the political problem that CMS and progressive members of the House of Representatives were putting pressure about, uh, which is that there's too much money uh, sloshing around Medicare Advantage in general. I don't know if that is the truth or not. I know that there is an argument to be made that Medicare Advantage is being paid more for, than fee-for-service, but 
That is also, in my opinion, a direct result that Medicare Advantage does more than fee-for-service, right? If you want hearing, dental, and vision, and you're a Medicare beneficiary, the place to get it is not fee-for-service. The place to get it is in Medicare Advantage. And my message to elected officials who are concerned about these types of extra benefits is if you want those things in fee-for-service, then pass that law through Congress making it happen. Until then, Medicare Advantage and to some extent these CMMI model programs are the places where those extra benefits can happen and where value-based care is taking place. And then you add on to that the new investments from the private sector in sub-delegated, capitated providers. My former employer, Oak Street Health is one, Village MD, One Medical, those types of organizations, Centerwell by Humana, Archwell by United. You add in all of those types of things, and you're in a place where that is where innovation in Medicare is happening. And that is in the private sector but difficult for some elected officials to take and some regulators to focus on. I think that there is a legitimate conversation that is continuing to happen and should happen about money, benefits, and outcomes in Medicare Advantage and in private sector organizations that partner with Medicare Advantage plans and the government. But we should keep our eye on the ball that this uniquely innovative system happens in the private sector and is not happening in traditional fee-for-service. Well, Andrew, you make some great points there. And I, I wanted to ask you now about this value-based care movement and you know how we factor in patient-reported outcomes. I mean, this movement to value is inextricably linked with health policy, and that con connection often just makes us think about the payment models, but there's this patient-centered approach to care that must also be taken in, into account that conforms to the payment model. And having quality measures that align with what's most important to patients is a clear way of getting there since process measures alone don't achieve patient-centeredness. You know, Measuring and reporting outcomes gives interdisciplinary teams a critical tool for accelerating learning, you know, knowing outcomes, these teams can develop insights on what approaches work best and, and for which patients that they can best care for. And ideally, clinicians would track and analyze a patient's current status and trends to guide clinical decisions, share clinical decision making and process improvement. And I know you've been an advocate of patient reported outcomes that can be measured during and after care, linking measurement to the fundamental reasons for seeking healthcare rather than using these quality measures process oriented as a proxy for quality. And I feel this is a big challenge for the industry because we rely so much on those standardized measures that are process oriented and not entirely focused on patient outcomes. And if you look at any other industry, values defined by the customer, not the supplier. And that comes down you know, to that Peter Drucker principle about what gets measured gets managed. I mean, if we want to truly improve patient outcomes, we have to know how to more effectively measure them. So, Andrew, I wanted to ask you, you know, about your thoughts about, you know, when it comes down to measuring outcomes from the patient perspective and using patient reported outcome measures, you know, how are we going to get there? I mean, how will quality metrics need to move from process to outcomes to achieve effective policy and value-based care? Dr. Weaver, this is just such an important part of kind of the, the structural part of how we get to accountable relationships by 2030 and beyond. And you're really correct that without determining what it is we're trying to achieve, right? You know, financial savings is one metric, uh, and that is incredibly important. But the outcomes that physicians and medical providers are able to achieve for their patients should be the most important metric by which we judge the health of our healthcare system. And so I think that there's 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 the structural debate, which I'll get to in a second, but there's also the kind of public policy advocacy positioning that I think is important here. Medicare Advantage insurers do themselves a disservice, especially as we now go over the 50% threshold when they don't put providers at the center of the Medicare Advantage conversation. We talk about risk adjustment, we talk about this insurer and that insurer. Some people focus on stock prices and profits and things like that. But by putting providers that 
participate in value-based relationships at the center of advocacy pushes in Washington and in state capitals. I think that uh, Medicare Advantage organizations benefit from that type of positioning and posture. But I also think that our system and the and policymakers and decision makers would benefit from that type of conversation to hear from doctors and medical providers directly. But back to your original point, about process measures being going to the wayside and outcome measures being something that's really important. You have to measure the goal that you want to get to. And so there's a lot of money tied up in this. There's a lot of inertia tied up in this. There's a lot of politics tied up in this. And so that makes it for a difficult situation here. But we need to move away from measuring things like, did you do a diabetic eye exam to what is the vision like of your patient? Have you addressed it? Is it getting better? Is cholesterol or blood pressure going up or down? You know, those are the types of things that are important. An argument could be made, and I would love to hear from, from physicians about this, but like, Measuring the number of screenings you do might not be the best type of measure in this situation. Why? Because if you are incentivized to get financially to get your patients better and keep them out of the hospital, then you are naturally going to do screenings because if you don't do those screenings, you're not going to know how to keep them out of the hospital. And so these are kind of the conversations that need to happen. A year ago this time, actually exactly 11 months ago, the National Quality Forum put out this really great report that was sponsored in part by CMS that said, these are the risk adjustment factors, and these are the ways that we can infuse the social determinants of health in order to pay for those outcomes that we all want into risk adjustment. And the report was kind of like ignored by the entire health policy establishment, and it didn't really, and maybe that was because it came out four days before Christmas last year, but I think that infusing those social determinant of health, the risk adjustment and quality metrics into everything that we do will shift the system to move towards outcomes rather than individual process metrics, which are good at checking boxes, but are not necessarily good at keeping people healthy. Well, in the Andrew, in the transformation of healthcare in our country, there's a prime policy objective to drive the refinement and uptake of improved value-based care and payment models and original Medicare and beyond. You know, effective health policy going forward will need to focus on how to better leverage the Medicare shared savings program as a main platform for permanent innovation. With CMMI acting as the research and design support for specific model innovations. And that strategy is so important for many reasons, not the least of which are the challenges associated with the innovation center's work and model evaluations and expansion decisions. Additionally, to continue the progression of value-based payment, the continuation of the advanced APM bonus or other advanced payment or investment incentives will be critical for ongoing engagement and value-based care by the provider community in the years to come. And as a DC insider, I'd love to hear your perspective on how model-specific evaluations are being made in the policy arena to inform the refinement efforts and how analyses of national health expenditure impacts are being made to guide policy efforts on how best to bend the cost curve. You know, Andrew, what are the current challenges with model evaluation, expansion processes, and multi-payer alignment to ensure that transformation occurs for all populations? And also, you know, I wanted to ask you about your work as a government affairs strategist. I mean, how does the current policy environment present an opportunity for providers to create or leverage internal capacity to achieve policy goals that serve both the broader value movement as well as their own respective goals in achieving organizational sustainability and value-based payment? So there's a lot of different parts to be able to, to answer that question. Number one, listen, I am biased coming from, you know, one of the best work situations I've ever been in in my career, which was at Oak Street Health. But it is my opinion that true transformation, especially in value-based care, can't happen unless you have providers willing to take on full risk. Right now, there is not a full risk track inside MSSP. 
you can take on full risk as a subdelegated provider with Medicare Advantage, and you can do that in some CMMI models, including ACO reach, right? But full risk here is the lever that needs to happen. And in order to get to full risk, both insurers and medical providers, including physicians, have to have kind of the courage of their convictions, especially in the primary care space, that they can keep people healthy. You have to have the confidence, the training, the technology, the infrastructure, and the support around you to be able to do that. And a lot of those things are lacking in our system today. There is no real value-based care training that happens in medical schools. There is no value-based care GME slots. And so you have to kind of rely on the private sector to be able to start to teach physicians and medical providers how to do this and to put the supports around them. That is expensive, right? When we're we're talking about, I don't know, uh, CMMI model offering maybe $250,000 in startup costs or no interest or very low interest loan to medical practices to be able to build some of the infrastructure around value-based care. That is probably not enough. The amount of capital that it takes to get to this is not aligned with the government's goals. And you continue to have to rely on capital-intensive uh, organizations to be able to provide that capital. And then they're also taking a big risk because some of these models will end. There is political uncertainty around some of the future of value-based care and political models. And so all of these things end up in some type of, again, to use that phrase soup, where there's uncertainty and a disconnect between how we are trying to get to this 2030 goal and beyond and the ability to get there. And I think until those things begin to be solved, we're going to continue to have a multi-tiered system where specialists, for the most part, are fee-for-service. Primary care, especially in Medicare, gets pushed more and more to value, but consolidation, monopoly, and kind of market clout is reserved for the biggest organizations in the country that have the resources to be able to get to full risk and value-based care. But the larger point I want to leave your listeners with, Dr. Weaver, is that full risk is the only way forward in this. It is the only true way to incentivize the system to have so much skin in the game that they are going to want and desire and do everything possible to keep their patients healthy rather than dealing with each individual sickness. And until we get to that point, we're just kind of doing half measures. The reason we're doing half measures is because a lot of the medical establishment is still conflicted between this kind of what I call love affair of the small independent physician, both at the primary care level and at the specialist level, and their inability to kind of get to full risk. And then the kind of new physician model, which is what folks like my cousin and his wife or newly trained doctors want you know, vacation time. They don't want to be small businessmen. They want a 401k. They want to kind of know some predictable hours to some extent. This transition is slow in, in happening and is really being, I think, stunted in some ways because of the inability of the large medical societies to say, this is some a place that we're going to go together and we need the government to help us get there. Well, Andrew, right now we have one out of every three U.S. healthcare dollars emanating from Washington. The federal government is the single largest payer of health services in the U.S. It accounts for nearly half of all national health spending. You know, as our country ages, these forces are accelerating, and Medicare spending alone is projected to increase by seven and a half percent annually through 2031. And for healthcare companies that depend on government revenue or are downstream from that, they have to be able to adapt their view about you know the customer relationship. And you have this view about healthcare being one where provider organizations should be looking at policymakers as one of their most important customers. And this is an interesting perspective, and it requires appropriate prioritization of customer service orientation, balancing the needs of other customers, such as patients, private payers, employers, physicians and other healthcare providers. And you know, with the mentality that policymakers are a customer of high priority, you founded your firm on the premise that organizations need to have 
internal professional government affairs expertise, and that's no longer a luxury. I mean, it's essential to corporate positioning and sales function. And to account for this, many companies are contracting with Washington-based corporate lobbying firms or rely on trade associations to represent their policy interests. However, you advocate for more of an internal locus of control when it comes to advocacy. So, Andrew, I wanted to ask you if you could elaborate on your perspective on why provider organizations should establish a properly motivated strategic thinking and in-house advocacy operation to direct their interest in front of policymakers to truly unlock the potential of value-based payment. I founded Platform Government Strategies, which you can get to at platformgovernmentstrategies.com, under the idea that my experience as a professional advocate in Washington at trade associations, at member associations, at nonprofits, and then eventually at the publicly traded Oak Street Health are... If you take government revenue, if you are partnering with the government on your healthcare delivery, the government is among your greatest audiences. And this idea that you would be a healthcare organization at any stage, even at the seed and angel investor stage, I'm saying, all the way up to series C and D and recently public, and certainly the big healthcare organizations have always done this. But you need to put your views front and center with one of your biggest audiences and customers, which is the government. I, I think that there is a dearth of kind of holistic strategy in this area and that the Oak Street founders like to joke with me that they should have hired me three years before they actually did to be able to position the organization appropriately in Washington. And that's not just talking to elected officials. That's not just writing comment letters to regulatory agencies. It's about having extraordinarily powerful messaging with the ability to share your innovation and share your perspective on what you need from the government to be able to deliver these services even better for the Medicare beneficiaries that everybody in Washington cares so deeply about getting the right care at the right time in the right way. And so nobody is going to do this as good as you will do it for yourself as an organization. And having someone who is very capable inside an organization to be able to direct that work, to be able to place members of your organization on the board of directors and on the right committees inside of trade associations, to be able to not just get you the right meetings, but then help you navigate those meetings in kind of a holistic and strategic way. A lot of organizations in Washington hold themselves out to be at the contract uh, kind of higher gun level as organizations that will assist you with writing and developing a strategic plan to be able to get your agenda in front of the right people. And I have found that to not be as available as the websites say that it is, as somebody who has purchased those services. And so what I'm seeking to do is be a real partner in a very granular way with organizations to either help them make their in-house government affairs operation better or to establish it for the first time. You know, there is a real difference in speaking to investors versus speaking to policymakers and elected officials, as there should be. And I find that a lot of organizations don't thread that needle in a way that is as productive for them. But even more so, there's a real imperative here that as more and more healthcare bills are paid for by the government, it is critical to going public, to raising fresh capital, to attracting the attention of potential acquisition partners, to growing in general, to having a presence in the national health policy conversation, to being at the right conferences and on the right panels, to being in the right room, to having a real thought leadership strategy in the healthcare news universe. And pulling all of that together are not necessarily skills that a lot of these companies have. And so I'd like to partner with them and use my experience in all of these different parts of the national health policy conversation with companies of all stripes 
to be able to figure out what the right path is for them. For some of them, it'll be just having a hired gun and that person or that firm helping them move across Washington in the right way, their CEO, their C chief medical officer, sometimes their CFO, to explain how revenue is brought in or um, the outcome measures that need to be changed, or sometimes you have just a bureaucratic problem that needs to be solved. But the other side also is helping you figure out what your federal priorities are, going deep into your organization, helping write a job description to hire your first uh, government affairs person for the first time, and then moving forward appropriately with that person. These are things that I think are no longer nice to haves. They are, as you said, essential corporate functions that are really important to both early stage, mid stage, late stage, and even public healthcare companies. And it boggles my mind that more of them are not involved in this space and I wanna help them do that. Well, Andrew, I'm intrigued by this dichotomy a, a provider organization has to leverage the power of unified voice versus establishing an in-house government affairs arm that emphasizes the uniqueness of the company's individualized and specific interests. I can't help but think of this analogy that it has related to music. In the realm of healthcare advocacy, there's a symphony of collective voices within a trade association that harmonizes the industry's chorus. It creates a powerful resonance for common goals, yet in an in-house government affairs arm, there's these individual notes. The unique melody of a provider organization is being played, and it adds depth and nuance to the broader composition of healthcare policy. And in the former scenario, there's strength in numbers with a unified power of collective. There's resource pooling, consistency in messaging. There's broader industry perspective that crafts advocacy strategies that are coalesced around common interests of the industry. However, an in-house government affairs arm allows a provider organization to tailor its advocacy efforts to specific needs and priorities, which is particularly useful when unique interests do not align with the broader industry. And there's flexibility and agility in operating an in-house model that responds rapidly to changing political landscapes or emerging issues. It establishes direct and personal relationships with policymakers that can clearly be a distinct advantage. And it allows the development of a specialized expertise that's an asset in advocating for policies that directly benefit the organization. So, Andrew, I wanted to see if you could further discuss the nuances between the two strategies? I mean, is it a true bifurcation or is there a possibility for a combination of approaches to maximize an organization's influence and effectiveness in healthcare lobbying? That was a beautiful kind of framing of this, uh, melodious. I think that it is totally critical to walk and chew gum at the same time and do both. Trade associations are the place where policy gets settled by industry players before it is brought out of the gate and advocated to elected officials. Obviously, it also gives individual organizations collective oomph, but also gives individual organizations a little bit, or I should say a measure of protection against kind of going out on something by themselves. But the development of that consensus inside of a trade association or an advocacy association or, or group is formed by the in-house government affairs professional with the assistance of medical leadership at your organization and your executive leadership. And pushing that agenda inside of the trade association behind the scenes is an art form and very important. And so you need to kind of do both. You need to make sure that your agenda it gets into the soup, to use that phrase once again, that the trade association is developing. Sometimes organizations are also going to disagree inside of an organization. That happens quite often. And it's the in-house government affairs professional's responsibility to be able to navigate that, that dynamic appropriately and get to the place that is the best place for their own organization. Sometimes that means that compromises are made. Sometimes that means that policy that was moving inside of a trade or member organization gets stopped uh, and doesn't happen. And so I, I think that that's an important part, but organizations that are new to advocacy need guidance on this. 
Um, sometimes the idea is that you might need to start your own trade association or member organization or coalition and managing that and working through that is another type of thing that a firm like mine, Platform Government Strategies, can offer to organizations to be able to do that. But these things, when so much revenue is on the line, and we have very clearly gone to the other side of private sector organizations and their incredible innovation being real partners with both state and federal government entities to deliver healthcare services to America is really, really important. And I, I just, again, I use the phrase boggle my mind, but like, this is a pool that you need to be swimming in. If for no other reason other than to provide some certainty for your business plan that you have allocated capital to and your investors, either public or private, are taking a bet on. Well, Andrew, you mentioned earlier that if we're, if we're going to reach a critical mass and value-based care transformation, we have to begin teaching it in medical school. I mean, delivering care in an interdisciplinary, holistic, relationship-based, technology-enabled, preventative model is so different than that transactional, reactive way we deliver care and fee-for-service. I mean, we need to teach incoming doctors about the benefits of value-based care to prepare them for success. And this will not only contribute to the advancement of medical education, but also pave the way for a robust, progressive healthcare system. And with almost 50% of bills paid for by the, the government, I mean, medical school classes that also teach students about advocacy is also essential. I mean, it seems like the medical world is behind the eight ball in terms of teaching practitioners how to practice in value-based care and providing them that confidence to focus on outcomes rather than volume. And it also lacks in the ability to empower them to be advocates for their organizations once they do get into medical practice. And I know that's something that you've been talking about that that's really important in this movement. I wanted to see if you could provide your take on the need for value-based care education in GME coupled with policy and advocacy education as an enabler for industry transformation? The more I, I get older now and the more I get deeper into my career, I've come to the idea that nobody knows anything unless you tell it to them. And you can talk, and we certainly do in our very narrow silos inside of healthcare and health policy, and that's probably no different than any other type of of sector of the economy. But uh, just because you come out of medical school with a, with a medical degree doesn't mean that you know anything about certainly running a small business, which is what a lot of doctors for many, many decades have to, had to do in the United States. But it also means that you don't know anything about advocating to elected officials or the effect of health policy on your future career. And you certainly don't know anything about the difference and there is a huge difference in the mechanics of practicing value-based care versus fee-for-service. And right, the, the different ways that a physician or a medical provider has to do that. And so I wish that there was a larger conversation about either continuing education in these areas, having uh, one of these classes taught in medical schools or nursing schools or things of that nature. But I think that it's a real moment for the medical educational establishment to really think about how are they going to meet the goals that are needed for American healthcare over the next 5, 10, 15, 20, even 50 years. If we are continuing to have a medical education that is rooted in the 19th or 20th century, then that, that is a strategic mistake, right? I always find that large land-grant public universities are a fascinating entity because they are created, and one of their mandates, if you will, is to help facilitate economic development and the future of that particular state, right? And so states with large rural populations usually have at their big land grant public universities have agriculture and uh, farming type of programs. And I think that we need to think about medical education a little bit in the same way. We need more mental health providers. We know that. 
How are we going to create them? Congress is certainly looking at GME in those areas, at incentives to incorporate mental health care into primary care. There was a hearing in the Senate Finance Committee about that just a few weeks ago. But I think if we want to get to value-based care and outcomes delivery, we have to start teaching that at medical schools. And that also involves advocacy and policy and its effect on, on the future of this part of the economy and incredibly critical part of our society that's now 20% of our GDP. And these are things that I think are, are incredibly important and need to be addressed. Well, Andrew, as we wrap up our conversation today, I'd love to get your thoughts on whether or not things can really change in health policy. I mean, the overwhelming vast majority of Americans are frustrated with the federal government for its toxicity, ideological determination at the expense of bipartisanship, and the ineptitude it often exhibits in getting things done. And it's simply inexcusable that healthcare is 20% of our GDP. You know, twice the amount is the second leading country in the world in healthcare spend, yet our outpatient outcomes are so poor when it comes to chronic disease. And over the last 20 years, we've seen everything thrown at the wall trying to create health policies that help people become healthier. We've seen prescription drugs and Medicare, the Chronic Care Act, ACA, MACRA, telehealth and remote monitoring, the move to value, MSSP, ACOs, et cetera. Yet despite these continued policy efforts, we continue to hear many leaders in our industry can claim that value-based care is a lost cause. And that goes to all the, the things we talked about earlier with the entrenched interests and you know the path of least resistance and maintaining that status quo. So I wanted to ask you, you know, as we wrap up our you know conversation, could you provide your parting thoughts on our efforts to transform healthcare over the last few decades in the policy arena? I mean, is there any evidence that health policy is making an impact on actually improving our system? One of the big questions I get from clients and potential clients is, is this professional health policy advocacy work? Does it move the ball? Does it change anything? And my experience after 10 years of being a political staffer and 10 years of being a professional advocate, advocate is that the answer is very clearly yes. When I started in American politics in the early 2000s, almost 30% of Americans lacked health insurance coverage. That number today is about you know somewhere between 10 and 12%. Deductibles are too high. Coverage is often not as robust as it should be and comprehensive as it should be. But that number is significantly lower, and that is really important. Another great number that I like to show as an example of this is that 99% of American children have health insurance coverage. And a great part of that is because a liberal of the Senate, Ted Kennedy of Massachusetts, and a conservative of the Senate, Orrin Hatch of Utah, came together in 1997 and invented the Children's Health Insurance Program. And today, 99% of American children are covered. You touched on the Chronic Care Act. That debate started in the Senate Finance Committee in 2015 and was passed, I believe, if I have this right, in 2018, probably took too long. The system is slow and creaky, and everybody gets to have a say exactly the way the framers of the Constitution intended. But today, we have chronic care SNPs and things like that that are being used as a foundation to further value-based care in very, very specific ways. And I alluded to the fact that last week there was a big, a few weeks ago in the Senate Finance Committee also, there was a big conversation about integrating mental health into primary care, which is so incredibly important. And so these things are happening. Another example is that finally, Starting in 2024, licensed clinical social workers and licensed professional counselors will be eligible to bill inside of Medicare, which they've never been able to do. That will expand the mental health care workforce, which is so critically needed right now. And so there is movement happening and important movement are happening. It costs too much. There are certainly still lots of holes in the system, but I think that incrementally the system is getting better and more people are being able to have access to that system. You know, I, I love to say that it is it is the private sector and it is private capital that allowed Oak Street Health to put its primary care health centers for people on Medicare in some of the poorest communities in America. 
And these are places that have never had healthcare before like this. I'm reminded of a wonderful story just outside of Georgia when I was at Oak Street Health and we were hosting Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock for a tour of a woman who said, I watched this health center get put up in our neighborhood. And for the longest time, I thought that it was going to be another check casher or another laundromat or another Dollar General. But instead, this beautiful, gleaming health center went up. That's really important and a step forward inside of our American healthcare system for communities like the, the woman that I just described outside of Atlanta. And so it is not enough. More work needs to be done. But, you know, to come back, and you'll forgive me because I was an undergraduate history major, the framers of our Constitution charged each citizen of the United States to try to form a more perfect union. That means that it's never perfect. And we are always trying to work towards that perfection. And I think that we, we are in many areas, and we're missing the mark in many others. And the affordability thing is a really critical part of this that we have not really quite been able to solve yet. And, and we continue to try to figure that out. And that debate is important and needs to keep happening. Well, it's well stated, Andrew, and you're doing incredible work just in advocating for these organizations on behalf of value-based care transformation. You're truly a master of Washington's internal game. And, and I love the the spirit to which you approach your work. You know, we do have to create this more perfect union. We can get there in transforming our American healthcare system. I can't thank you enough for joining us this week on the Race to Value. Your company, Platform Government Strategies, is there to, to serve organizations that need to develop and uh, leverage uh uh, internal advocacy solutions, develop expertise. You mentioned your website earlier. Just in, in parting, you know, how else can people uh, follow your thought leadership and reach out if they have any questions? Yeah, absolutely. There's a few places. Thank you for, for asking me that. One is the, the firm's website, platformgovernmentstrategies.com. You can also reach me at andrew at platformgovernmentstrategies.com. You can follow me on LinkedIn, Andrew Schwab. I'm right there. Uh, I try to post important health policy musings that might be helpful and of interest to folks. And then I'm on Twitter, uh, or should I say X, uh, a little less than I used to be, but that's uh, at Andrew Schwab NJ, which uh, while I live in the in the Maryland suburbs of Washington, D.C. shows my early Jersey political pedigree. And uh, I'm thankful for, for you having me here, Dr. Weaver, and for these really great questions and your podcast that's doing really good work to try to move our system to value. Well, thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show, and I look forward to staying connected and appreciate all your work and supporting this important movement to value-based care transformation. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. 